Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode 11, Ivan the Great, Part 2. In last week's episode, we saw how Ivan the Great crushed Novgorod and replaced the elite boyars with Muscovite loyalists. This was only the beginning of Ivan's gathering of the lands of Russia. The staggering growth and speed of growth was as great as any in human history. The Romans, Chinese, Persians, to name a few, all grew to enormous proportions in their history, but Ivan did it in record-breaking time. His expansion went north to Tier and Novgorod, all the way to the banks of the White Sea. When he took control of Novgorod, he kept one half of the land for himself, giving the rest to 2,000 of his people, some of them loyalists from Novgorod, the rest from Moscow. What he did was to copy the late Roman Byzantine Pronoia system, whereby land was released by the state to a loyal subject in return for service to the state. This land was heritable from father to son, as long as the son continued in service to the state and ruler. The institution was known to the Russians as Pomesti. Ivan would deport whole peoples who he believed were even in the slightest questioning of his sovereignty. The families who replaced the deposed would serve in the military, which allowed Ivan to field an army four times as large as his father Vasily the Blind. Furthermore, Pomesti was an institution that molded the Russian landscape until the revolution 440 years later. Ivan expanded east to the frontier of the Khanate of Siberia. He went west to the Ugra and Desna rivers to the southeast, taking then-Lithuanian towns of Bryansk and Chernigov. Soon he extended his lands just short of Kiev. As for military power, he annexed one prince's private army after another into his ever-growing military force. His armed forces made him the power to be reckoned with. Let's stop here for a moment to say something about Ivan himself. This was not a benevolent, kind-hearted ruler. He was cruel and ruthless, not unlike his grandson, Ivan the Terrible. But was he really any different than other rulers like the Tudors of England? Others, in hindsight, have condemned Ivan, calling his reign brutal and oppressive. But as author Philip Longworth states, should not historical figures be judged in context and according to the standard of their own times rather than of ours? Ivan, like any good ruler, was not just good at what he did, he also needed a bit of luck. In April of 1467, that bit of luck would strike, although at the time it must have seemed like a tragedy. Ivan's wife, Maria of Tver, died. Now how might you ask, can the death of his beloved wife be a stroke of luck? She was the mother of his only heir, Ivan Ivanovich. But as many familiar with life expectancy in the Middle Ages can attest to, one male heir does not a stable lineage make. Ivan needed more sons. He needed to guarantee that his legacy was secure. Two years later, in 1469, a Greek named Yuri Trakariot presented himself to Ivan with a letter from Rome written by the Byzantine scholar Bessarion. This is the same Bessarion who played an important part in the Council of Ferrara, which sought to join the Roman Catholics with Russian Orthodox. He was certainly not a popular man with the church in Moscow. 
I really wish I could board a time machine to arrive at the moment Ivan read the letter to see his reaction. The moment Ivan realized the significance of what was in the letter was a seminal moment. He must have sat back, bathed himself in the totality of what was to happen, and began to know, to glow, knowing that if done right, it would secure his position as the rightful heir to the legendary Roman Empire. But this letter was from Rome, a place that many Russians viewed as a bastion of all that was wrong with Christianity. After the sacking of Constantinople in 1204 by the Crusaders and their abject depravity, they showed, the Orthodox held a great disdain for the Catholics. The feeling, of course, was mutual, as the Catholics thought the Orthodox were cowards for not helping them retake Jerusalem. So when Ivan received the letter, he had to be cautious and take care not to offend the church hierarchy within his country, who, of course, did control a large proportion of the countryside. The planning he had to do was for a wedding, as the letter was for Ivan to take a new bride, one Zoe Peleolog, the niece of the last emperor of Byzantium, Constantine XI. After the capture of Constantinople by the Turks, the remaining relatives of Constantine, the Peleologs or Peleologos, were virtual traveling paupers. Zoe was staying in Rome under the auspices of first Pope Paul II and later Pope Sixtus IV. It was the hope of Paul II and the bishops of Rome that this joining of Ivan and Zoe would be the impetus needed to reunite the two churches split in the Great Schism of 1054. This was almost an absurdity, a ridiculous belief, as the churches were split beyond repair, ideologically, spiritually, doctrinally, geographically, and linguistically. It is likely that the real reason for the desired joining was to add the Russian army of Ivan to invasion of the Holy Land and to retake it from the Muslims. Zoe's trip to Moscow from Rome was a long and arduous one, as they had certainly to avoid the Ottoman Turks, who would be more than happy to catch a paleologue. So north she went, to the German port city of Lubeck, to board a ship to carry her to Raval, which is now what is known as Estonia. There, a group of Teutonic knights escorted her through Peskov to Novgorod and finally to Moscow. Her entourage included one Cardinal Antonio, who would unwrap a Latin cross upon entering each city. But when he came to Moscow, the Metropolitan, along with many of the church elders, threatened to abandon the city and Ivan if he was allowed in with the cross. Cardinal Antonio put it away and entered the gates of Moscow with Zoe. She must have been aghast at the wooden shacks of Moscow and the countryside compared to the opulence of Constantinople and Rome. And after the perfunctory ceremonies and receptions, the Catholic envoys were sent packing back to Rome. Zoe, for her part, wanting to show the Russian people her commitment to orthodoxy, changed her name to Sophia. Still, the Metropolitan, suspicious of this woman, decided against presiding at Ivan and Sophia's wedding, as there were issues related to church law that were in question. Contrary to what the Latins had hoped for, Sophia embraced her Russian orthodoxy and pushed her husband to grab a hold of the legacy of her uncle and become a great ruler. He turned inward and almost immediately, at his wife's behest, adopted the imperial double-headed eagle, which was the symbol of the Byzantine Empire. 
the eagles, one looking east, one west, represented the leadership of the emperor, or tsar, over both the secular and religious world of his people. Rome was eager to have the help of the Russians to fight against the Ottoman Turks, but Ivan had to worry about the still lingering threat of the Mongols' golden horde in Sarai. Sophia, of whom we hear in writings of the time, was a beautiful and intelligent woman who influenced Ivan to adopt many of the ceremonies of Byzantium and to adopt the title of Tsar, the Slavic version of Caesar. But with the Mongols still being sent gifts of large amounts of money, he still could not be considered to be his own man, and Sophia let him know it. Khan Ahmad of the Golden Horde sent a number of envoys to Moscow in 1475, demanding that Ivan come to Sarai to present himself. Ivan flat out refused, as he knew if he would, it, this would greatly diminish his stature, and if he went, the Khan would likely hold him prisoner and gather his tribute as a ransom for his release. He sent some gifts, but the money desperate Ahmad wanted was cash. In 1478, the Khan demanded all back taxes and tribute. This was the final straw for Ivan. He looked at the letter, shredded it, and threw it in the envoy's faces. He then took a picture of Ahmad that the envoys brought with him so that Ivan could prostrate himself in front of it. He threw it on the ground, stomped on it, and ordered the execution of all the envoys, save one, who he would send back to Sarai with the warning to the Khan Ahmad that he would do to him what he did to the painting. Stomp on him. Ahmad knew that his troops weren't up to its past glories, so he made a deal with, wait for it, yep, Lithuania, and their leader, Casimir IV, who led a combined Lithuanian-Polish army. Ivan, who was a shrewd leader, made a deal with one of Ahmad's rivals, Mengli Garay, the Khan of the Crimean Horde, to attack Poland and keep Kashmir occupied. Ahmad then gathered all of his forces, as did Ivan, and as happened a hundred years before, at the time of Dmitri Donskoy, the armies faced off across a river, this time the Ukra, in the year 1480. Worrying about crossing a river and having water behind him, Ahmed waited. For weeks, the two armies watched each other, hurling insults and slinging arrows at each other. Winter approached, and the river eventually froze. At this point, Ivan, never known to being overly brave, he was kind of actually thought to be somewhat of a coward, began to retreat. Ahmed believed that this was a ruse, and he hesitated to pursue. Now, although Ivan had retreated to put himself into a better defensive position, he was still nervous and was about to abandon the field had the Khan attacked. Then, as luck would have it, a messenger came and told Ahmed that Sarai was under attack by the Crimean Horde. This was a ruse, but he fell for it and headed home. Soon thereafter, Ahmed was killed in a coup in the year 1500. The Crimean Horde, with the help from Moscow, overran Sarai soon thereafter, and the Golden Horde was no more. The yoke was finally broken, never to come up again. The dominance, lasting over 250 years, causing enormous pain and suffering with the slaughter of huge numbers of Russians, was over. Russia had finally broken an identity crisis 
as it was no longer a vassal state. It could stand on its own. Now the last city to thumb their noses at Ivan's preeminence was needed to be dealt with, and that city was their perennial rival, Tver. Prince Tver, Prince Michael of Tver, could obviously not stand up to Ivan's forces alone, so he sought an ally, and I'm sure by now you can guess who that was going to be. Yes, it was good old Casimir IV of Lithuania. Ivan readied his army and marched on, marched on Tver, but before he got there, Michael recanted. Two years later, he tried once again to free himself from Ivan, but he backed off when he saw Ivan's army approach and that Casimir was nowhere to be seen. Michael eventually gave up his fight against Moscow and fled to Lithuania, where he died, with the rumor being that Ivan's agents assassinated him. Therefore, the last obstacle to Ivan's claim to leadership of all the Russian people was gone. He began to use the word Tsar in his writing, and is the first one to use the term officially, although it is not used regularly until his grandson Ivan IV uses it. As a true leader, Ivan began to reach out to his equals, the other rulers of countries in Europe and Asia. Next week, we wind up this series on Ivan the Great and introduce his son, Vasily III. Now for our new segment, This Week in Russian History, week from July 4th through the 10th. In 1770, we have the Battle of Larga between Russia and the Ottoman Empire beginning. In 1790, disaster strikes Russia in the Russo-Swedish War, where Sweden captures one-third of the Russian's navy in the Battle of Svenskund. In 1917, we have Prince Georgi Lvov forming a provincial government following Nicholas II's deposition. And one year later, the Bolsheviks murder the last Romanov, Nicholas II, and his family. I'd like to dispel any rumors. Anastasia did not survive, despite the uh, Disney movie, to the contrary. In 1943, the Battle of Kursk, the largest battle in history, of all of human history, commenced between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. It also represented the largest tank battle in any war ever. Well, it was a short uh, week of history of Russia. But I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, please don't forget to visit the website at russianrulers.podhoster.com, markshouse.com, follow us on Facebook at Russian Rulers History Podcast, and leave a comment, make a suggestion, ask a question, and das vidanya is pasiba bolshoya.